when it, when it comes to uh, marriage advice, I'm not saying you should ask me anything. <laughs> but however, there is one thing I've learned about my relationship with Claire. And that is around holidays and things, she likes to decorate a little bit. So she'll, and it's usually like some surface in the house, like the coffee table or the, you know, the mantle or something. And she'll change things up for the season. So uh, what I'm supposed to do is notice that. Okay, now, I don't know if this is true for all women or all relationships or whatever, but uh, if you're a single guy or married, just bear this in mind as a little tip. So it became Easter week, and I came into the house, and the table was all set, you know, all this stuff on. I was like, Claire, this is, this is I, that looks great. And she's like, no, that was obvious. <laughs> That's what she said. So she said, because what typically happens is I'll come in and she'll say, did you see the mantle? I'm like, no, uh, but I'm going to go look at it. I'm definitely going to go look at that. And so I go in there and I look at it. There are certain things that have to happen for this to actually work. You, you, I've learned that actually figuring out a way to stagger backwards is helpful. There's a, you have to have a sense of awe. And it can't be false in any way. It has to be absolute. So you, you really have to nail it. But the, the one thing that will ruin it, guys, that will ruin it is a hesitation. You hesitate, it's over. Because you had to think about how this was going to work out. How are you going to say this? So, and it's the same with, you know, what she's wearing or anything like that. And she asks, bam, nail it. I have, so... We've been in the study of First Peter. This is the, the la- of just First Peter chapter one. This is the very last piece of that. And all through this, I've been amazed at the things. It's really in awe of the stuff that Peter has put into this letter that he's writing. It's just packed. It's just crammed full of stuff. And he's used all kinds of. If we were looking at it in the original language, we would see all of these layers of complexity and poetry and. He's rhyming and he's doing all different kinds of things in order to make this letter really hit home with his people. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's, he's just trying to connect them in any place that he can. So for me, there's been just literally a sense of awe around that. And th- this week, actually, maybe I should say last week, we skipped ahead. We skipped over the part we're going to go to now. We went to the very end of the chapter. We're going to go back and we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. And there's, there's something in this passage that I, that is, it's amazing all of the things that he put in these four verses. And I want to tell you a little bit about what they are, so when I read it, you'll be prepared to look for them. And there's so many, I, I've got to stick to my notes on this. He's going to show us what a relationship with God should look like. He's going to tell us that Jesus, well, that God ransomed us with the life of Jesus. He's going to say that we are guilty of breaking a relationship with God. And not only did we break it, but we inherited that. That all of our efforts to know him without Jesus will be futile. That peace and happiness will, be, will escape us. That the ransom that Jesus paid was always a possibility for God. That it was always planned if we moved away from him. It's going to tell us that we were worth the sacrifice. 
It's going to tell us that Jesus proved that our sin had been paid for by his resurrection. He's going to tell us that belief and faith in him, in Jesus, is sufficient to allow us to appropriate the gift of that ransom and to move into a relationship with God. And that's just a little bit of what's in these four verses. It is just crammed full. Now, let's, here's, here's the main thing that I want to say. I think this is the main thing he's saying. The ultimate ransom was paid so that you and I and all men could be restored to a relationship with God. That's what he's saying in this whole chapter, but in these four verses in particular, the ultimate ransom was paid so that we could be in a relationship with the one true God. We're going to drill down on that word ransom and look at it pretty closely as we walk through this this morning. So let's read uh, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. Look for some of the things that I mentioned as we read through. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Another way to say fear is to say uh, reverent awe. Throughout the time of your exile, he's writing to these exiled believers, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's, that's the whole gospel message wrapped up, but we kind of need to pull it apart to see it. And here's, here's my question for you to ask you to be thinking about this morning as we, uh, as we move through this. Do you have a sense of awe for what God has done through ransoming you? Do you have a sense of awe? If you could think about that through this or this day, I think that will help us to connect with what Peter wants to tell us in this passage. But about this idea, there's, there's three things that I want to show you. This, this word ransom, to me, and in this passage, brings up three concepts. One is that it brings up the idea of position. Another is the price and another is the proof. So I got three Ps. I'm trying to be like Peter here. Poetic, you know, something. Anyway, it's just this three Ps. Position, price, and proof. The position, what I mean by that is the fact that if you need to be ransomed, it means that you are incapable of bringing yourself out of that position on your own. Okay, so this the word ransom means you are stuck, that you cannot help yourself. The second one is price. When you have a ransom, the ransom is another word for a price that is paid. And it tells you what the person being ransomed is worth. It also tells you the extent that the person doing the ransoming, the redeemer, is willing to pay. How far they're willing to go. That's the price. And the proof. The proof in this case is simply this, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to talk about that for a minute. So let's look at that. This is the, uh, the idea that the ultimate ransom has been paid for you and me, for all mankind. 
So this idea of position. So we're not talking about physical captivity, of being placed in it where you can't get out of a jail cell. This isn't the kind of thing we're talking about. This is a spiritual captivity. It is, this is what it means, is that because our relationship with God is broken, there's no way to get back into that relationship. It cannot be done on our own. So something has to bridge the gap, and that's this ransom. So we're stuck spiritually. We cannot know God. And Peter calls it futility. In verse 18, he says this. He says, Know that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay, two things about this, and we we all need to understand this. There is a... When, we, when the relationship with God was broken, there are two pieces of that. One of them is that we inherited that broken relationship from Adam. In other words, it's in our DNA. There wasn't anything we could do about it. And Paul speaks to this. He says, in Adam, all men sinned. And so that's what Peter is picking up here. He, he's saying, through your family, because you are human, you are a part of the generation of those who are broken away from God. A lot of times we think, well, you know, what was it that I did that was so bad that would break my relationship with God? It wasn't that big of a deal. Or that child is too young to have a broken relationship with God or something like that. But the fact is that we are all broken and broken away from God from the beginning. It's important and it's, it's clearly spelled out in the scripture. But there is this piece that says that not only is it that we have inherited that, but we're also culpable on our own. And I want to read you two brief passages from Paul, from Romans 3. This is Paul saying, None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And secondly, from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think most of us are aware that there is sin in this world and there is sin in our lives, both by inheritance and by our personal culpability. It's by what we have actually done. So we're in, we are in need of ransom because we are in a certain position brought on by sin. Are you with me on this? We have been divided. So we need a ransom to have the opportunity to know God. We are in, spiritually, a perilous situation. And it requires the intervention of someone else on our behalf. We cannot get out of there by our actions, by being good, by doing the right thing, by anybody that we know, anything like that. It is, someone else has to make it possible for us to know God. Second thing is the price. Peter tells us what the price was. Look in verse 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. So what was the price? What did it cost to bring us out, to bring us into the possibility of a relationship with God? It was Jesus. It was, and he says, the precious blood of Christ. And if you've been to Obi-Joyful very often, then 
You've, we've sung songs about the blood of Christ. In fact, sometimes I think Tyler really, really likes the songs about the blood of Christ. <laughs> no, it's okay. But there's a good reason for that. Because the blood of Christ, especially to the people that are receiving this letter, is not something that is in any way offensive. What it does is it, it, it brings a lot of meaning to them. We aren't used to talking about blood. We don't see a lot of blood. We don't like blood in particular. We don't sacrifice animals. But to them, this is completely normal. This is a very normal part of life. And I think when, what we might need to do is when we see that word blood, we need to translate it to something that truly makes sense to us. And when it says that it's the precious blood of Christ, it means it was the precious life of Christ. Because in the, in the prophets, they clearly said that Christ would not spill his blood, that the Messiah would, would not bleed, which he did not do. So it isn't that his blood was poured out physically. This is important to know because you'll sing songs about Christ's blood being poured out. His blood wasn't poured out and that was foreseen by the prophets. But also, the prophets said his, you know, they, they didn't bleed to death on the cross. They suffocated on the cross. And so Christ suffocated before the other two guys next to him and his legs, their legs were broken so that they couldn't hold themselves up. But Jesus was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. And the prophets also said that his, le- that his bones would not be broken. There is this price that was paid that was the, li- the precious life of Christ for each one of us. But the- that's amazing in itself. But the price also tells you the determination of the person doing the rescuing, right? How determined is this person to make this rescue, to redeem the person who is trapped? This was the, like we said, the ultimate sacrifice. And it was all given just so that we had the opportunity to know him. He does not make us choose him. He opens the gate. You know, many of y'all are familiar with uh, the story of the prodigal son, where the son leaves his father, takes all the money, squanders it, gets as low as he possibly can, and comes back to the father. Jesus told that story in Luke 15. This goes way beyond that. This is, that was the son returning. Also in Luke 15, he talks, you've heard the story of the lost sheep, where Jesus says, God's like a shepherd. He goes out after the lost sheep, the one who's strayed away. And he, and he leaves all the others behind in their pen in order to go and bring this one sheep back. This goes beyond that. Because what God actually did through Christ was to replace that person who had gone so far away. To take his place. And Jesus says in Luke 15, he says, there'll be more joy in heaven when one person believes than 99 people who don't need to be, who think they can work their way into heaven. So when I think about this, I think what was the value that Christ put on us, that God put on us through sending his son for us? Significantly more than I think we were probably worth. In other words, he, he drastically overpaid. And the, the reason that 
that I think that is because I don't value sin enough. I don't realize the affront that sin is to a holy God. We are, that, that sin makes it impossible for us to be in the presence of God. And in his mercy, he went to incredibly radical lengths to draw us into that place. He didn't, he didn't go to undo what was done, but to permanently overcome it. Christ didn't come just to undo what was done, but to permanently overcome it. Claire worked at a camp called Canacuck, which I'm sure most of you all are familiar with over in Missouri, when she was about 20, so maybe 11 years ago or so. (laughs) At least by appearances. And most of y'all, if you know about Canada, you know it's a sports camp, uh, or it was a sports camp, particularly back then. They were just growing into some of their other uh, larger operations and things like that. Well, uh, because it was a sports camp, when something happened, when some uh, camper broke the rules or had some kind of infraction or whatever, what they would do was they would impose some kind of a, a physical effort to to appease. Right? The punishment would be something like you know, push-ups or running or whatever. And, and you know, we all get that. We see how, how that goes. Well, in this one particular situation, well, let, me, let me tell you one more thing about Kanakuk. Is this particular camp was built on a really steep slope that goes down to the river. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's this long, they've got this long set of steps in a couple of places that go down to the river. Well, one of the campers uh, got into some trouble. And it was a fairly significant thing, like borderline needed to be sent home. And so his counselors and the leadership got together and discussed, what are, how are we going to deal with this? This is really serious. We want him to understand and to be able to move forward. We don't want to discourage. We want to help him move forward. And so they met the, the camper at the bottom of the steps, uh, a couple counselors, and said, hey, this is the situation. And... In order to, um, the, pu- the punishment for what has happened here is going to be very intense. And it was, frankly, it was pretty shocking what they were going to ca- make this kid do. In fact, it would have worn out a college student, a college athlete. And so the kid is sitting there and he's just shocked at what he's hearing. He's, he's, he's having to make the decision, am I going to go home or am I going to do this? And the punishment was to run those steps pretty much to exhaustion. Well, they're, they're sitting there, and they tell the kid, and the kid is, is like I said, in shock. And the, his counselor turns around, and he starts to run up the steps. And this, and this camper is like, what, what, what's going on? And he asks the other counselor, and he says, hey, he's going to do this for you. And so the kid, he said, well, you're, you're free. You can go on and, and go back and, and do your stuff, but he's going to run this. And all afternoon, that counselor was out running the steps for this kid. And this, is, this illustrates something really, really important. And that is this, that it's God's character that required the ransom. It wasn't, some, it wasn't Satan. It wasn't some power of sin. It was because God is righteous and holy. He didn't have to pay someone off. 
But sin had to be paid for because of justice in the, in the universe of a holy God. And so he said, in order to bring you back to me, I will do the work through my son to bring you to me. So when we talk about ransom, we understand that there's this position that we're in that makes us incapable of renewing our relationship with God. There is this price, in this case, a drastic ultimate price that's paid for us. And then finally, there's this proof. And that's the thing that we celebrate today. Peter, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm standing up here and in my life, I'm saying that I believe in a resurrected man. And so I'm thinking, Peter is writing to these people who are exiled, who are suffering for their faith, who need encouragement. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if Peter was with Jesus at the end, and then Peter watched Jesus go to the cross, and Peter was actually so afraid that even in Christ's presence, he denied Christ. You remember that story? Almost like Peter's faith is teetering there. If the body had stayed in the ground, had stayed in the tomb, what would be Peter's most natural decision? Would he be writing this letter? He would have gone back to fishing. He would not have written this letter. He would have stopped risking his life for someone that had lied to him. Someone who nights before had said, I will be resurrected in just a few days' time. Peter was intelligent. Obviously, he had a family. There would have been no message from him in Acts that converted thousands of people. The story of the first part of Acts is mostly about Peter and his work in the early church. You wouldn't see no narrative of the growth of Peter and following Christ. This letter was written 35 years after the resurrection. Why would he do this if the body had stayed in the tomb? It, it makes no sense. Because Jesus did resurrect, because God brought him out of the tomb, Peter is willing to write this and encourage them 35 years later. Without the proof, we would have no Peter. And he would not have written this, uh, verse 20. It says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, God was prepared to give his son for us. But he made, was made manifest in the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, and he raised him from the dead. Peter would have been gone. We wouldn't be here. The ultimate ransom was paid for you. Are you aware of that and does it create a sense of awe in you? That's, that's, I want to close by asking, setting that out before you for a moment. Uh, God doesn't force you to believe. He's not making you do it. He's just made it possible. In fact, he's made it so possible that if you are in that cell that is futile and separated from God, it's by your own choice. And it says, in, even in this little passage, that it is just the difference between being here and being in this cell and, and being futile in life in every way and being in a relationship with God that is full of hope and a future is simply belief. 
That is what bridges that gap. And it's only by faith in Jesus that what he did was sufficient to bring you into that relationship. So, he doesn't force you. Do you believe? And finally, uh, like I said, back at the beginning of the passage, Peter says, you need to live in reverent awe, knowing that you are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, by God in whom you believe, and by whom Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me read to you from Romans 8. I'll put it up here so you can read along too. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, imprison us again. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If you believe, you are free in that relationship with God. And whether or not you believe or not, God has gone to radical lengths to make it possible for you to know him and to be in a relationship with him again. Um, And I would say to you, I think that that is worthy of reverent awe. Will you pray with me? God, we confess that we live our lives and we're totally distracted by the things we think are important. Our plans, our events, where we're going, how good we are at stuff, how bad things are, our health, whatever. But God, you have... um, overcome all of those things. Uh, Our focus, our belief, our hope should be in you. Lord, we thank you for what you've done and that uh, that you put up with us, that you understand, that you love us, that you gave your son for us regardless of where we stand on all those things. And God, I know that talking about someone who is resurrected, Lord, uh, for our society, our little scientific society is difficult. But God, it is um, too hard to believe that even someone like Peter would move towards, would move on and write these letters if he had not seen Jesus alive. So God, we turn this day over to you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great week, and we will see you again soon. We're going to hold off on the communion, running out of time. Okay, have a great week.